and my audience is and the audience that I talk to, I reinforce that their audience should be senior leadership. That's kind of the world that I'm trying to help people communicate to. Senior business leadership. They care much more about the why than the how. They don't care about the how until they understand the why. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. This episode of the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is powered by Z by HB, HB's high compute, workstation grade, line of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Scott Taylor, otherwise known as the Data Whisperer. He's helped countless companies by enlightening business executives to the strategic value of proper data management. He focuses on business alignment and the strategic why rather than system implementation and the technical how. As principal consultant for MetaMeta Consulting, he helps enterprises and tech brands tell their data story. His book, Telling Your Data Story, Data Storytelling for Data Management, is available now. I've linked it in the description. An avid business evangelist and original thinker, he continually shares his passion for the value of data through industry events, public speaking opportunities, blogs, videos, white papers, podcasts, cartoons, puppet shows, and all other forms of thought leadership. He lives in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where he often kayaks the Black Rock Harbor. He can also juggle pins and blow a square bubble. In this episode, we explore how pushing out of your comfort zone can help you make the most out of your career, the idea that how you communicate is just as important as what you communicate, and you finally see what you can learn about data from puppets. Scott, thank you so much for coming on to the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast today. We've obviously rolled in a lot of similar circles on LinkedIn, and you have a really cool story of breaking into data from what some would say would be the most non-traditional background. Uh, and I'm really excited to hear about how you've carved out your niche in the space and some of the things that you've picked up along the way or some of the things that uh, you find particularly interesting about the space from not necessarily originating in it. Well, thrilled to be here, Ken. Thanks for having me. And I feel like I had to move closer to be one of your nearer neighbors to make sure I could get on the show. Yeah, you're, you're, you're quite a bit of ways of probably opposite and opposite sides of the U.S., Exactly there. Exactly. I I started off in data, as you mentioned, kind of a non-traditional way because I came at it from a sales angle. I started selling for a data company that was attached to a publishing company that I had worked for years earlier. I left this publishing company, went off, did a couple of startups. Obviously, none of them really hit and came back to this data part of this publishing company, which had sold itself to another larger group and knew nothing about data. I liked the people. They liked me. I considered myself kind of one of those folks who can sort of sell water to fish, you know? And uh, it struck me as a unique opportunity. And as soon as I started there, the guy comes in, my sales manager comes in first day. He brings in this book, this deck. This was back in the day when you had to print out all your slides. We didn't have PowerPoint, so that'll date me. And he brings this book out. It's like that thick. And as he's walking into the conference room, this is my very first day in my head, I, a little, my voice goes off and says, there's no way I can sit through all of this. 
this is no matter what it is, this pitch is already too long. And he starts going on and on and on. So I got good at really crystallizing the value premise of this particular data company, which was focused on creating standardized, what I would call now, which we call now master data, reference data, metadata, kind of an external third-party source of that to help enrich and structure other people's files. And I got really good at really telling that story. And when I told that story in a way that people could begin to understand it, the business just took off. It was literally a sales and marketing story about a story, which was if you position things correctly, if you can be really crisp and direct around what your value proposition is, if you can show that people the benefits of what you have to offer in their language and the stuff you've got is good you're pretty unstoppable. And this business literally grew 12 times its size at Nielsen and it was a huge success. And I kind of never looked back every time. I mean, that's how I got hooked on the, on the data business, but it was always, and today, what I do today is talk about how people talk about the value of data and try to help folks position it in a really business accessible, simple, hopefully buzzword free approach because when you run into a CEO, you only have about a couple of minutes to make your point. And that's the audience I'm trying to help people go to. That's incredible. And you know, something I would like to ask you is why is there such an inclination to overcomplicate data decision making? I think that there has to be a lot of nuance, but I also think that when you're trying to communicate and drive action, the language around data, it really struggles to, to meet the needs of the decision makers. And why do you think that that's so prevalent in this space? I, I think part of it's inherent just in the world of technology, which tends to be, okay, here's the newest, latest, greatest thing that replaced the newest, latest, greatest thing we told you about last week and the hype around it and the intensity and the lack of understanding by a lot of business folks, which I frankly think it's a little bit taken advantage of. And this idea that I, I can't find another word for it other than ridiculous, this ridiculous sort of notion that all we need to come up with is the next thing. And it's called this and it will solve all the problems. So an example and technical value aside, today it's data mesh, it's data lake, it's data lake house, it's data fabric, it's, you know, those things are positioned. And again, with all respect to folks who do them, the raison d'etre of all of those things seems to be a magic bullet. We finally got it. This is what you need. And I think it just kind of feeds on itself. That's one part of it. The other part of it is just working with data. And I, I, that's where the whole practice of data storytelling, certainly in the analytics space, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for those folks who are, who are moving that along to help people look at these numbers and make sense out of them, to put them in a business context, to drive a business action. But it is, you're right. It's, 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 the space is just rife with all kinds of confusion and buzziness and bickering about what we mean by this and that. And it just, I think it holds us back. I think the way we talk about data is one of the biggest things that holds data back as a practice area the broadest way you can broadest way you want to articulate what we all do. I think the way we talk about it 
holds us back. Well, something that I really took out of that is a lot of the the things that data teams and people are talking about is future oriented. It's it's uh, it's building things rather than deconstructing things. And from what it sounds like, a lot of the time, building things is not going to necessarily be the answer. It could be sifting through already what you have and organizing it so that in the future, you, you in theory, could build things that are more scalable or make a lot more sense. Is that sort of the message that the data integrity, the, the data that you have is, that you currently have is the best data? And like, we have to uh, like organize it well. We have to do these things. There isn't a magic bullet to just like properly documenting along the line, properly working with the data that you have and setting up good infrastructure. Uh, but it is, it does sound a lot sexier if you have, hey, you have all this messy data. I have this new product that's going to come in and fix all of it. People want to play in a rock band, be on a stage in front of thousands of people, but they don't even know how to pick up a guitar. That's kind of the feeling I get. You got to do the work. You got to do the, you know, you got to determine the truth, as I'm fond of saying, in your data through data management, those data management practices before you go off and start to derive meaning. There is also in what you said, this, this feeling that people have, this urge they have to build something new. You know, most of the time, most of the value you get out of most of your data is basic business stuff. How do we help grow the business, in, you know, increase sales? How do we help improve the business? You know, where are those operational efficiency opportunities? How do we protect the business? We got to mitigate risk, data privacy. These are basic blocking and tackling stuff that businesses need as a foundation before you get off on the wonderful, super cool stuff that you know may apply to 0.000% of your business. You got to do the work. I mean, it's why they call it work. I mean, you got to do the work. It can be fun, but if you don't get your, I joke about it in my puppet show, which I know we'll talk about, you know, if you don't get the annual reports right, then it doesn't matter about the rest of that stuff. If you don't have a customer hierarchy that your customer service team understands and can operate against that is similar to the way the head of sales views these relationships, then you're going to get dissonance in the field that is going to be distracting and keep you away from that idea of trying to grow the business. So these structural, foundational, basic piece parts are where data starts. And I feel like we spend way too much time talking about and glorifying where data ends up. And we got to spend a little bit more time focusing on where data starts. And that's where I live. I live where data starts. So how do you reel people back? I think that there's, especially a CEO of a company, for example, there's tremendous pressure to get data science, machine learning, even AI up and running really quickly, uh, because there is this huge difference in how different companies are operating within the space. You know, you look at a big tech company and the things they're doing are light years ahead of what maybe a brick and mortar, a large brick and mortar store is doing as they transition. How do you articulate that message that you need to walk before you can run when everyone who wants to grow their business just wants to run? They do want to run. You do want to run. That's a great way to put it. The way I are, I, I try to summarize what business is all about and where data can fit in it. That's a lot of the work I do is like how do you boil things down to sort of an essence and, and make it extensible across all different kinds of, of, of situations. 
So the way I look at it is every enterprise wants to deliver value to their relationships through their brands at scale. So that running stuff is certainly around at scale. Every business, whether you're brick and mortar, digital native, whatever you happen to be, you want to do things faster, more efficiently at scale. You want to do it, you know, instead of 10 times manually, you want to do it a thousand times on an automated basis. All that stuff resonates with every kind of business leader, no matter what part of the company they're in. What I try to do is focus on what those initiatives are that are connected to the relationships a company has and the brands that they create to deliver that value and very quickly look at the data a company has about its relationships, which usually sucks, and they've got about their brands, which is usually, at the very least, disparate, different versions of brands from operations and marketing and sales and so on. If people agree with the premise that data is an accelerant for business, that will, uh, you can't scale without technology. Technology, hardware, software, data. You have data, you need data management. That's probably the shortest way I can try and connect those dots. But you want to capture that excitement of, look, we want to go do great stuff. We want to have the business grow and scale. Forget about how, all right? I'm about the why. I always talk about the why. A CEO who, you know, somehow stumbles into clubhouse and listens to a bunch of folks talking about AI and data science and comes back and goes, yeah, we need this now. I mean, that's a dangerous person, right? Cause they don't, you know, they literally know enough to be dangerous. That may not be the total answer. So focus always on the business objective and show why what you do with data can help enable that strategic intention of your enterprise. And I think you'll have a much more successful conversation in your organization, getting support for the data work you want to do. And because you're a practitioner, I think you can talk people down off that ledge of like, oh, we want to do this, you know, auto ML, augmented AI, whatever the latest, you know, version of that. We got to back it up. You know what? The data we have doesn't support that I that notion. We don't have the data to back that idea up because we got all these duplicates and our hierarchies are a mess and our taxonomies are, are, are confusing and our geographies that we have are complicated. These, these things that, that, that are really getting back to the core basic foundational piece parts of what data structure is all about. I, I, I love that. You know, something that has been in the back of my mind around how a lot of people, maybe more in the startup space than in the, in the corporate space approach machine learning and AI is that they believe in some way that AI or machine learning is a business model, right? And it, it's it's pretty clear to anyone who's ever done it, you know, uh, machine learning, AI, these things can enable a business model. They can help you improve outcomes, but the AI or the machine learning in and of itself is not a business model. No, right? absolutely you, not. You I've have never to heard be driving that, but that's... Yeah, I've never heard that before, but that just sends chills up my spine to have somebody think that a technique in approach is the business model. Yeah, well, and you it, know, I, I saw a post on LinkedIn from uh, my friend, Mark Freeman, who, who's going to be on the podcast soon. And someone reached out to him and they said, oh, we're going to we're going to build this trading AI, right? We, we don't, we're going to bring in a lot of people. We're not going to pay you anything, but our business is going to do this. And this is what it's going to be. And essentially that is suggesting that 
this AI on data that they don't have on all of these different things is going to be the what makes all the uh, all the money for this business, all these things. And that's just not like you, we should be focusing on on the value that you drive originally. And how does even data analytics help facilitate that? You know, not not thinking that this is an end all be all without having understand and any understanding of it. That is, uh, it's becoming more and more common, and it's more and more frustrating every time I see it as well. AI as an enabler, as you suggest, can make those business models more efficient, more effective. But it's part of a product, and that that brand that that company represents versus the technique they're using to make the brand. It's almost like saying, you know, a certain kind of factory design is our differentiation. And the reason you should buy our product is because our factory is designed this way versus the output of the factory. Who? Yeah. People don't care what's going on inside the factory. If you're, you know, if you're a customer of that, they want to see the output. The output's got that. Okay, you put, you know, craftsmanship, whatever. I can go on. As long as there aren't children in the factory, we're good. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, but uh, exactly. So, uh, but just that the the idea that the the technique is the is the business model. I think you're right to suggest that's a dangerous path, and gets people down that alleyway of like all the buzzy stuff, and you end up doing it for the sake of doing it. And meanwhile, you're not, you know, company's not making its numbers. <laughs> you know, so I've been a part of teams. I've had friends that work on teams where data science was an initiative from the CEO or the CTO because their competitors were having it. And it wasn't because, hey, like it, there's a clear business case for us to drive value. We're doing this because we think we need this in order to compete and we don't know how to use it at all. We're just you know, we're not even going to trust it. We're just going to have it to say we have it. And to me, that is such a colossal waste of money, one. But it's also a complete misunderstanding of of the domain and the field and what it's good for. I mean, there's so many teams out there that are not set up for success because of a lot of the things that you've described. Like starting, it all starts with data. If you don't have data and it's not in good shape, you can't do data science, you can't even do data analytics. You can't even make a visual, right? And right. Uh, it, it's it's this thing that snowballs up the chain of command and it gets worse and worse the later you start or the, the further down the road you set your initial sites. This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute, workstation grade line of products and solution. Z is specifically made for high performance data science solutions, and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z4 workstation. I really love that the Z line can come standard with Linux, and they also can be configured with the data science software stack. With the software stack, you can get right into the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. I'd love to switch gears just a little bit. I, you've been on the speaking circuit for a while, and I think that that level of extroversion or that type of uh, that that type of putting yourself out there isn't necessarily comfortable to a lot of people in more individual contributor roles. And I'd love to hear your story of navigating the speaking and like getting into that. And how perhaps you know your background has has lended yourself to that, uh, and then I'd also like to get your thoughts on 
um, you know, there's an importance of putting yourself out there, right? That's really valuable in speaking. That's really valuable in, uh, in sales. But one thing you've articulated to me is you also really stay in your lane with the, the data domain. You know, you know what you know, and you're not going to claim to know things outside of that. Um, how do you balance those two things where you want to get outside of your comfort zone, but you have to be true to what you know to, to be authentic? Long question. Where you want, I apologize. Where, 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 where you want me to start? Start, start with, with the, the, how you got into speaking. <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite thing I do. It was my favorite thing. My whole career was getting on stage. I know there are people who think, you know, who, who just have nightmares about it. I come from a diff totally different angle, which is like the bigger the crowd, the better I am. I just love it. I thrive on it. It's exciting. It's really fun. It takes your whole being to do it correctly and to do it well. And I really try to do it as well as I can to bring that energy, the enthusiasm and some kind of spark to whatever sort of event I'm, I'm part of. I started off doing dramatic arts in college. And that's where I got that bug for that. So just kind of a natural, you know, goofing around in class. I was one of those guys, you know, calling out in English class in high school, but the teacher would laugh. That was always, and they'd always hate it because I would say the something that they would actually think is funny, which completely invalidates their authority position and all the rest, right? So it was like, all right. Um, and, uh, but then channeled that desire into into dramatic arts and did a lot did plays every quarter i was in college i did at least a play if not two at a time and so that was just you know getting used to using your voice getting used to knowing where the light is focus timing presence all those things it's a technique and the more you can learn a technique no matter what it is you know it's like r and python and you know, if you work at that and you can do better coding and programming, you're better at it. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a discipline and it's, and it's a craft. And then when I got into business, I was good at presenting. I started doing industry events when I was at Nielsen. And that became kind of part of my personal brand was, okay, we would sponsor an event, but I would get to go on stage. And unlike the usual vendor, I was, you know, generally, I'm not bragging here, but it's generally the highlight of whatever agenda it was, especially because, you know, the competition is not that tough when it comes to sort of, you know, dramatic effect small bomb, some yeah. of these, you know, conferences, eight to say. So I had, you know, fairly to the point where I would get to, I would look at an audience, there'd be somebody before me and I would look at an audience and they'll all be there and they're being attentive and somebody's going through a use case or a case study or whatever. And I go, okay, I know in like five minutes, all these people are most of them are going to feel different than they do now. And none of them know it. So it was really fun moment to sit in the back of a room of a couple hundred people and go, okay, I know that all these people are going to feel different. I know the energy is going to be different, you know, watch from, you know, now in 10 minutes. Till, so you get a thrill out of that. Anybody who does performing does that, you know, gets that kind of thing. If you, if you love it. And for me, out of my comfort zone is not the content that I talk about, but maybe the approach I take, okay, can I make this bit a little crisper? Can I come up with a different angle on something? There's a big 
theme out there. How do I draw what I know and connect what I know to that big trend in the industry? Can I try a different way of delivering? Over the last year and a half, I've done more on-camera stuff than I've ever done in the whole rest of my career, and I'm getting better and better at it. And that, for me, was really a good way to beef up my stable of capabilities. And the content I, I stick to, so I came, at, I came at it from acting, and that's almost an unfair advantage in most business situations because they're very rare that anybody did any kind of consistent, and I did local theater outside of college. I'm not saying I was ever going to go off on an acting career or be a star in that stuff, but I know I've got that talent in me to be able to do that. And when you actually spend a lot of time talking to people you don't know, pretending someone you're someone you're not, and making memorized lines sound like they're coming out right from you in that moment, that's a muscle that if you strengthen, becomes really, really valuable. So when I'm on these agendas, I know they're, you know, rarely, you know, I'll see somebody and you can tell when you do this stuff enough. And, you know, when you go to auditions and things like that, they always say they can tell in the first couple of moments and you can tell in the first, you know, somebody take the stage. How's what their voice like? How do they, you know, command their, what's their stage presence? That's a really big part of it. Can you really command this room and take this room versus, you know, getting up there and shuffling around. Hi, you know, I'm the, I know I'm the last thing between you and drinks tonight, but I'll just go through this, you know, self-deprecating blah, blah, typical opening of, you know, half the sessions we usually see, which is, you know, if you don't want to be there, why do I want to listen to you? So, you know, having fun with it, energy is at least, I've, I've found to energy and kind of the focus around it is at least half the game for sure just having that that kind of stage presence and that energy in there well so, something that i've really picked up on is if you don't believe, sound like you believe in what you're saying why should anyone else believe in what you're saying right yeah, uh, yeah. and it's it's fascinating to me if you look at how uh, technology has evolved in every like drop of an iphone even i think the most famous one is I think it's like Michael Balmer with Windows 95 or 97 or something. And they're on the stage. They're like, so yeah, doing that, yeah, like doing that, you know, quirky yeah. dance. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to me, that's like, you don't have to do that in your, in your next meeting when you're presenting your analysis, no, no. but at the same time, why, why not integrate some showmanship? Why not integrate some excitement or something different? Like th- that inevitably gets people's attention. That is something that, if you want to convey a message, like, you know, I think an example is how much money and time and effort they spent on the boxing of the initial iPhone, where when you open it, it takes like six seconds for the thing to come out. It's really slow. It's like, it's dramatic effect. Like, yeah, you're going to be more excited about, about what's coming out of it. Like there's so many levers that you can pull with how you deliver information. To me, it blows my mind that people just don't understand why they're not getting um, why they're not getting the response they want from the what they're offering, whether it's a dashboard or whatever it is. It's like, well, you presented it completely wrong. You could probably put a, a complete 180 if you set it up correctly. And uh, I think that's someone, something everyone can take away from the theater, the dramatic arts. There's like anticipation built up. There's sequencing. There's like conflict. There's resolution. And how much of that do you see in your everyday meeting or your everyday speech about a technical product? 
Very little. Very little. I mean, I honestly, you, you, you got to remember, if you're trying to explain something to somebody, the person you're explaining to doesn't know it, right? They haven't lived it. You come in there, you've worked all this stuff, you spent all this time doing all these things, you've been your whole life, and you come in there like, why don't they understand? And you just don't even know where to begin. They don't know it. Even if they're an open, willing audience, they don't know. You got to take them through it. You got to start somewhere. Every mentioned dramatic arts, too, you know, in that in theater, Every, if you study Shakespeare, you know, I studied humanities. I came from the liberal arts side. So I don't, you know, in terms of STEM, I was on the opposite of STEM. Every Shakespeare play has the same structure. Every single one, you know, exposition, rising action to a climax, to a denouement, which is the untying of the, the plot, not to, a, you know, an ending. Every single one. And if you watch anything, I love watching movies, movies that I really like. I like watching the first five minutes again because you see how they set everything up. They're introducing you to characters. They're setting some themes. They're showing you stuff that you don't even realize is important until later. They don't just start. Most movie, you know, most stories that are told in some sort of media don't just start in them. In the, and, you know, turn on a TV show in the middle and you're like, what's going on here? I don't know. This person. So there's natural. There's a lot of those things. And if you go so far as to add showmanship, you know, that's got to be used used uh, uh, lightly in a business situation. But the structure of a story is important for people to understand if they want to convey what they are doing to somebody else and have them understand it. And in a business sense, take action on it. Every story we tell in a business context, the, you know, the conclusion is you need to take action on this. Yeah. You're trying to convince somebody to do something and you got to get them to go in most cases from, I have no idea what you're talking about to how do we live without this? That's a, that's a long journey. <laughs> it can happen really quickly, but the steps are always the same. Yeah. Well, something you, you said that I really like is that like nobody else knows the story you went through, right? Like nobody knows all the hard work I did on the dashboard that I built and, and all the, the, the process that I went through and the debugging and the issues that I ran into, right? Like it's going to mean significantly more to me than someone who has, uh, who has not experienced that because, you know, I lived through that hardship. Me just trying to convey that to someone else is going to be, you know, they're not, I've lived that story. They haven't lived that story. And I can either tell that story or I can create another story around, uh, around whatever I was building or what I was working on that conveys the value. Uh, I also love the idea that there is like in every movie I see, every show I see now, I have started to like uncover this hidden structure. I've read a couple of books about how all of these are, are, are structured essentially in, in every, uh, in every single book, movie, whatever it is, there's conflict and resolution. Like that's an inevitability in a good story. Uh, there's also usually a main character, a protagonist, possibly an antagonist, and they're usually flawed, right? And if we're looking at this in the term of, in terms of a business, that's one way to frame, um, one way to frame a lot of these conversations. They're flawed, but they're likable. And there's this mm -hmm. book called Save the Cat, <laughs> and I started watching all these different movies. And, and the, the premise is that 
you have this broken character who should be unlikable, but they do something early on in the plot that endears uh, the viewer to them. And it's usually saving a cat. Like I legitimately watched, uh, there's a show called Squid Games that I'm watching right now. And in like the first or second episode, the main character who is like the least likable person on the planet, he legitimately like feeds a cat some of his food that he didn't have to. And he like really took time to so with it. I was like, oh my goodness, this is straight textbook. Right. Uh, and there was another one, I think in um, like one of the Suicide Squad movies, uh, the, the main character also did the exact same thing with a cat yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> like it is, it is scripted. Like these are things that happen and everything and they're done consistently because they work. Yeah, they work. They work. Yeah. You, you, you want people, you, you want people drawn in, you want them to have an emotional reaction. To your other point about kind of the struggles you went through to create something. Most people actually don't even care about that. I don't mean to be cold. But that's oh, not the true. story they want to hear, right? Exactly. That's your care. story, not their story. It's your life story. As I counsel people, it's like, you want to tell a story, but you don't want to tell your life story. Okay. So it's like, once upon a time, I started here and then I used R and I tried this and then it was no sequel and, but you know, whatever it happens to be. And we tried this and it didn't work. So I get to it and get, and my audience is and the audience that I talk to, I reinforce that their audience should be senior leadership. That's kind of the world that I'm trying to help people communicate to. Senior business leadership. They care much more about the why than the how. They don't care about the how until they understand the why. Focus on why it's important to them, to their business. They hired you because you do all this great stuff. So you already got the job put those practices in play in a way that it helps their, the business, you know, which we're all part of. I even kind of bristle sometimes on this almost artificial differentiation we have sometimes with sort of data and IT and the business. I'd like some of those walls. I, I'm, I'm a perpetrator. Yeah. Cause this is like, well, aren't you the, but you work for the business too. So we're all, you know, you, you should learn the business, understand the business, unless you're just basically like a data science assassin that they can put in a room and you just like solve anything. You know, they have those kind of super experts out there in every field, unless you're that, which most of us aren't, no matter what we do, learn the business, learn your business, learn your business's story. There's a story already there learn it, understand it, know the characters, know who's feeding the cat, know where the objectives are and show how what you can do can move that along. It may not feel as exciting and as sexy as I've just come up with a brand new total, you know, our new business model is AI. We're going to completely transform and disrupt everything we do and rip it all apart. You know what? If you're working for most companies, that's not going to happen very quickly. You know, the reality is they got, you know, like most companies, most of the time, most of the data value comes from just making sure the stuff they're doing is working better <laughs> and fixing the problems that are already there. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I would like to ask you a little bit more about the puppet show that we alluded to earlier. Sure. <laughs> I, I think that that's. You know, that's fun and different. And I, I really value different takes, different perspectives, different ways of conveying information. I think that that's legitimately what I've had, what I've made my name in in this space is 
a different medium, perhaps, or a different way to convey a message. And I love hearing about the origins of where other ones of those have come from. So my puppets, the puppets of data, was on YouTube. It's on my LinkedIn profile. I'll link it below. Uh, yeah, we'll link below. Um, came about, so I did this video like uh, end of 2019. And it just took off. I mean, unlike anything else I had ever posted, done, whatever, it was literally the biggest hit I ever had with these crazy, but the CDO, the chief dog officer and the ITB who speaks in buzzwords. And then this business monkey comes in and um, I did all these voices and I had all these literally what I thought were just sort of data jokes and lined them up. But as far as a story goes, I realized actually, as I was doing it on a small tangent, this can't just be a series of things, just, you know, gags. This has got to have some kind of struggle, some kind of stuff. Like the bee and the dog clearly have a relationship. You can tell when they talk to each other, they've, had, you know, they've worked together, they got a relationship and so on. So I put this thing out there and it just took off. And what was so thrilling and exciting was seeing the reaction from folks, which was generally along the lines of, this is awesome. This is hilarious. And this is my life. You know, how did you know? I just got out of this meeting. This is, you know, this is so funny because it's so true. And again, it's puppets. They're just talking in gibberish. They've got this struggle to try and find the data and fix the data. But I saw I really hit a chord in that. And there's not a lot of that kind of really goofy stuff going on in the data space. The origin of it, if you want to talk about that, the B came from, I was working at Dun & Bradstreet. And Dun & Bradstreet had this internal HR project where they asked people to do videos on what inspired them. And I did a straight one and it did very well. And they liked it, you know, how I it was something around, how, you know, ways to work in a meeting. It was sort of inspirational stuff. And then I had all these D&B jokes that I had never used. And I'm sitting around going, I need a care. How do I do this? And I, I came up with this character, Dean B. And it was like, Dean B, Dean B, Dean B. How could nobody ever come up with that before? It's like the FedEx arrow, right? And that logo. It's like, how could nobody have seen, not seen that forever? The 31 flavors, you know, logo where 31 is in Baskin and Robbins. So it was just like sitting there hidden in plain sight. So I did this internal video with this B and it was the most watched internal video at Dun & Bradstreet, even above the, the senior leadership giving everybody holiday greetings. It was like way up. And most people just like absolutely loved it. And then as usual with me, there's always like some group that just thinks what I do is just really stupid and inappropriate. And that's, that, that's okay. You want to have that seasoning in there. You want to have some folk can't, you can't make everybody happy. Can't please everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And most of those folks in this case were in marketing because like, it's not on brand and there's no, you know, play and I'm playing with the, with the branding of the company, which people get super sensitive about but the partners wanted to show it outside. I mean, I got all kinds of requests to show it outside the company and they would never let me show it outside the company. So I had that character already kind of in my stable and just built from there. So Dean B turned into this uh, ITB and uh, I've got more planned coming up. I've been writing a bunch of it. 
And at this point, it's almost like a screenplay because I don't know how many parts it's going to be, but it's not a one or two part thing. It's this epic journey of the puppets of data, the chief dog officer and the ITB, how they go off and try and fix data in their company. And I've just been collecting anecdotes and dialogue and all kinds of ideas around. They're going to take the classic data journey and they're going to you know, fail miserably in every possible way to try and teach everyone, you know, kind of remind them in a cautionary tale. They'll hire a cat sultan from Meow Kinsey. They've got an antelist from Gardner. You know, I mean, the puns are easy. And I found that <laughs> corny stuff plays globally. Oh, well, That's well. what I also found. I just, you know, corny stuff plays. You know, having the other one, it's like, what's a pirate's favorite programming language? Arr. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's, you know, boom. So I'm having a ball with that. I haven't been able to spend as much time on it as I wanted because I actually am trying to also, you know, do regular work for a living. But it's there. It's for sure. I'm like super excited. So it's coming. I got some some friends that you know who will be some uh, guest voices and uh, a few other folks I'm trying to pull into this and looking at different characters and how they deal with the data culture. They go to a sort of a TED talk thing, but it's a duck. So it's a duck talk, but it's not really a, it's a duck X talk. It's like, and this duck gives them what they bread believe talk. is the answer that like the seminal answer. This is it. This is what you have to do with your data. And they go off and try to do it. Um, I haven't actually decided whether they completely fail at the end or they somehow magically have some sort of epiphany, but it'll definitely be a couple of trials and tribulations before they get to the end there. But it's just a blast. I mean, it's just a blast. It's like, all right, I'm going to do puppets. I mean, if I look back and, you know, if you haven't asked that question yet, what would you do differently? I would have done puppets earlier. I would have done all that kind of stuff earlier in my career where I knew I had the acumen for it and the creativity for it, but maybe just didn't have the chutzpah to kind of really break out of the sort of safe, like, you know, okay, I'm a general manager of a business. I got to be, I can't do all this wacky stuff. You know, to me, there's something about uh, the puppets and the storytelling that you're describing that is inherently relatable. I think everyone has a little bit of that. Um, I think maybe the right word is like eccentric side, but they're scared to put it out there. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think inevitably people respect the, the ones that are willing to put that out there and, and highlight their interests and how it intersects with some of their other interests, whether it's their career or whatever it might be. And, you know, that's something that I, I really strive to do. There's definitely been some videos and some content that I haven't put out because I was like, Oh, you know, like this might be embarrassing or whatever it might be. But at the same time, you know, I always think kind of what's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> if I'm really showing myself, if I'm being authentic with this, and this is like what I think is funny, there's tremendous value of that. Uh, and in terms of success and growth and virality, people are more likely to share something that they can relate to, right? That they think is funny. I mean, you know, I look at like a a, a movie or whatever it might be, like people go to see a movie to be entertained, but they talk about the movies that they relate to that, 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 um, that they can attach to and talk about. And I, I read another book called story worthy. I highly recommend it. Mm. And in it, 
the guy basically says every great story, every great movie is about something that is not um, is not exciting, right? It's not James Bond jumping out of a plane or whatever it might be. It's about an interpersonal relationship or, you know, a, a struggle someone went through, whether it's, you know, like, like a trouble talking to girls or something like that. Like that is inherently relatable and are baked into any of the the more exciting themes that are associated with these things. Um, and I think that that level of nuance, I think that 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 ability in whatever story or whatever speech you're giving or whatever presentation is out there is unbelievably important, right? If, if I'm talking to people with a data background and I have a, a business background, I, for the most part, probably can't speak and and share the same experiences, the relatability that they can. I think one of the things that you really do have working in your favor when you when you go and speak is that uh, from the sales, from the business background, if you're speaking to CEOs, business stakeholders, business leaders, they say, "Hey, this this person can can share my experience. He knows where I'm coming from, but he's also picked up this unique data insight in these types of things." Sometimes crossing that barrier, or as I think less than a barrier, getting through that gray area between business and data science can be really hard if there isn't any relatability. Honestly, in my career, something that's been very valuable is I've been a management consultant. I was in consulting before I moved into data. Oh, and wow. I understand the differences, yeah. right? Yeah. But, yeah. But, I, yeah. but I can see if I was just coming from like my peers in, in computer science when I got that degree or when I worked in that domain, I can see where the message gets muddled. And being able to relate on both sides is something that hopefully in, in my career or, or in any of the endeavors that I do, it, I've seen a tremendous return on investment, even though I didn't really intend it to come out this hmm. way. I, I found I kind of live in the gap. That's why I started to see some success between the data folks, IT folks, and the business side and be able to articulate what the data people were trying to say. And I found this consistent frustration. I was calling on people all the time, every kind of company at Nielsen. We talked to packaged goods manufacturers all over the, the country. Then I moved to a global role and started talking to all different kinds in media and different businesses they were in. And Nielsen was in. And there was always this frustration on the data from the data folks of just like people don't get it. And so they were right. They were right. The stuff they're working on will help the company. Their approach to it is going to, you know, will most likely work. The value they think is there is pretty much there. They just have this frustration. A lot of them, I know I'm overgeneralizing here, but it just tended to be a, 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 an, a generalization that felt valid after so much experience. How do we articulate? You know, they don't understand me. I'm trying to explain. So I could explain what they were, figure out what they were doing enough to be able to share that back to the business side and live in that gap. There would get to a point, and you were talking earlier about like my lane, staying in my lane. You know, there's a point where I just absolutely do not understand it. Like, don't, I can't go there. Forget about even ex explaining it. It's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Most of that is around the how. Very little of that is around the why. Yeah. So it's okay. This is how you're going to get it done. This is what we're going to do, right? Yes. And the stuff that you're talking about is going to get it done, right? I trust you. That it's going. To, yes. All right. I'll help you go explain it. When I was at, I always had 
yeah, I worked at a lot of big companies, Nielsen, D&B, consulted at WPP, the world's largest ad agency for like 18 months. I was all over that organization. It was really fun. I always had a technical partner who would keep me honest. And when I got to DMB, I did this a lot at Nielsen. I talked to operations people. I talked to production people. I talked to people who actually get the work done because it was really important for me to understand, okay, how do we do, how do we do what we do? And I would even open, because at that point in my career, certainly it was like, look, I know where my talents are. I can make stuff sound compelling. Okay, so that's what I do. I can make stuff sound good. Now, it's your job to keep me in check and make sure what I'm saying isn't bullshit. So I can make it sound good, but it, if it's not right, I need to be correct as well. So I'm throwing it on you to, to, to let me know, to speak up. To, you know, if you hear me speak and I'm going to do a session, like afterwards, tell me if these things aren't right or not. And the best friends I had in any business environment are the best partners I had were the folks who would say that. They would go, Scott, you know, that was really funny, but, you know, it's completely inaccurate. Or, you know, don't say that. I mean, I had somebody I worked with in Nielsen and she was just like, you know the thing you say? Don't ever say that again. Right? It's stupid. Anybody who understands it thinks you're stupid. I mean, you're just a great friend of mine, so she could speak that way. But you need, it's like, okay, I won't say that anymore. So that's what I mean kind of by knowing your, knowing your spot. And I had a product guy I worked at at DB, a great guy. And he would just, you know, I would just ask him how I feel about things. People would come in and say, oh, we're going to blah, 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 blah. I'd go, how do I feel about that? Is that good? He'd go, yeah, that's good. I, I love, okay, I love it. I don't even understand why. Um, so there's that, there's, that, there's that balance in there. But in terms of knowing your, your spot, I've worked with a lot of folks at these companies who had really great ideas or initiatives or concepts. They just couldn't pitch them right. I mean, at a certain level, and it's pitch, you know, there's, yeah. well, so, you I know, mean, my heroes are Don Draper, not at home, but at work, you know, those are my guy who just go in and tell that and just nail it in front of a whole bunch of folks and just capture their hearts and minds around the image of whatever he's pitching. I, I think something that, that I really struggle with in that environment is that culture and trust are, are really important. And in a lot of organizations, the C-suite or, or people who are decision makers, they don't necessarily trust the, the data people, the data scientists, whoever it is enough to just go with their solutions without fully understanding them. And the problem is that they're never gonna fully understand the solution because sometimes there's like randomness, like it's very difficult to articulate why a neural net is spitting out something that it is. There are better tools now that we have, but even the data scientist doesn't necessarily know um, like why it's creating a specific outcome, right? We can test the outcomes. We can see that they've been reliable over time, but the fact that we don't know why and we can't articulate that to a business stakeholder is is usually a, a moot point. And it's like, oh, if I don't understand it, I don't want to use it. Mm. And I think that that's getting better, but are there things outside of trust and culture around those things? Um, they can sort of bridge that gap. You know, I, I, I assume part of that is selling, but how would you sell around an obstacle like that? You know, one of the results, I think results are part of it too, even if it's an experiment or a test, did you show some form of result? But if you're trying to convince a 
you know, good leaders that I've dealt with and worked with don't question. They trust their employees. Yes. The methodologies. Yeah. They're like, all right, you, do, you know, I believe you. That's a lot of weight. You got to realize, you know, you better be right. <laughs> Somebody's really picking it apart. There's probably something else. So in some cases, there's something else and they're just coming up with reasons to say no. And sometimes, you know, again, when you get that in selling all the time, you're like, all right, this person's just coming up with, you know, no matter what I say, they're going to come up with an objection. But that trust, you got to build that trust. That trust is really, really critical. And I would just, you know, I would question somebody who's just picking it apart too much. Uh, is yeah, that think- really the, is that my dad would have, my dad was one of the greatest salesman on earth. And he even said to me when I was a kid, he would be like, what's the real question? You know, so when you're asked that when you're nine, you get some pretty good training <laughs> because he knows like, okay. And it's sort of sensitized. He's like the person that's in that quit. That's not the real question. I studied history in, 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 in college. That was what I literally majored in. And they talk about underlying causes and immediate causes in history. Like what happened? You know, there was somebody was assassinated. And so there was this, that, you know, war after that, but underneath that, there were, you know, years of turmoil and dissonance and struggle that kind of built up to that point. It didn't just, and that's just the linchpin. Yeah. 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 So, you know, looking for those kind of things too. So a little bit of similar situation, but just feel like it's kind of the same thing. Unbelievable stuff. That is all the questions I had today. That's uh, it. We're done. All right. This was fun. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Are there any, uh, so how can people find out more about you? Are there any initiatives you're working on right now you'd like to share about? Excellent. So uh, they can find out, I will put some links, I guess, in the show notes here. So find me on uh, LinkedIn. My website, metametaconsulting.com has, is basically a site that I put together just to have a place to put all my stuff. So it's got all but finally, because I was living so much in LinkedIn and I need this. So all my videos, all my blogs and podcasts, and this will be up there and the events that I do. And this is all I do for a living right now, which again is thrilling because I'm doing the most favorite part of what I've done in my entire career. That's all I'm doing now. So I'm just, you know, from a career perspective, as an analogy, I'm just eating filet and lobster tail. It's fantastic. I hope you don't kick out. No, I won't get out. It's a, a balanced diet for sure. And then trying to expand, you know, more puppets, more cartoons, more stuff like that. So it's all on there. I just posted something that really went well. It was a little story, another story angle with my grandson, who was affectionately named the Data Whisperer, Data Whisperer Jr. And I read him a story called The Little Red Data Hen, which is a takeoff on the little red hen that goes and tries to make bread and who will help me grow the wheat and who will help me grind the wheat. And everybody says, I won't, I won't, I won't. So it's the same thing with managing data. I won't give away the story because everybody knows it. It ends, in this case, it ends tragically, absolutely tragically. So it's like a three-minute video. I got another one. It was such a big hit. And so he, and he was great in it. So we're doing another one called The Emperor's New Dashboard. You already know what it is. Of course, Sometimes yeah. they just write themselves, Ken. So we're going to work on that one. I want to do something for the analytics community, a little more focused on them. Obviously, you know, it's clear where that, that story's going. But initiatives, it's that kind of stuff I'm working on. I'm working with, I'm partnering with a couple brands, doing content with them every month. That's 
keeps the lights on, keeps it going. I love working with them. And, and I love that they like the way I help them tell their story. The book keeps going, telling your data story, data story, telling for data management, 99% buzzword free right on there. That's my, I don't want to overpromise. Is buzzword a buzzword technically? A buzzword is probably a buzzword. You know, like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a buzzword. You know, one person's like completely disruptive technological advancement is another person's buzzword. So it's it's all, you know, it is literally all relative. But it's fun to just kind of to, to play on that. And, you know, more to come. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. More events. Get better at what I'm doing. Get, you know, more succinct a little more pointed, a little more satirical, a little funnier, just keep it going and just keep talking to folks like you, Ken. So that's, 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 that's my plan so far. <laughs> awesome. I am looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. I will share all of those resources below and until next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellaridi.